You want it. You need it. It's what everyone's talking about. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Now, here's Kevin. All right, I'm here. Aaron is here. This show's presented by Window Nation. If you're in the market for windows, call 866-90NATION or go to windownation.com and tell them that we told you to call. Tommy's not here today. He'll be here on Tuesday. Joe Banner, who was an NFL executive for 20-plus years, uh, with the Eagles in particular, will be on the show today. Scott Van Pelt as well. Um, This tweet from Cam, uh, Aaron, to start the show It's now gone too far, Cam writes to me on Twitter. You guys in the media have gone over the top. It's become mean. They were 6-3 and and would have been a playoff team, if not a division champion, but the injuries hit. Stop it. They're not that far off. Well, that's one view, uh, and I appreciate uh, you tweeting me, Cam, um, at Kevin Sheehan DC on Twitter. Uh, Cam, have you gone... Have you gone to the Redskins' Twitter account and looked at the responses to every single thing they tweet out? This is actually really amazing. For all of you that haven't done it, go to the Redskins' Twitter account and look at every single tweet over the last week and then just look at the responses. There isn't. Yesterday they sent out a congratulations to Brian Arakpo, who retired yes. uh, from the Titans uh, the other day. Every single response was to fire Bruce Allen. It's actually remarkable for those that, if you haven't seen it, it's an unbelievable movement of sorts. It is as impressive a movement among fans that I think I've seen in a long, long time. Uh, It really is. Um, I guess my point, Cam, is it's not just the media. I mean, come on, dude. I mean, it's, it's... it's a reaction from the fan base. And in the media, by the way, most of the media members that have been passionate about this, and I would put myself into that category, I mean, I'm also a fan, and that's where my passion stems from. That's the root of it. But every single response to anything the team tweets out is to fire Bruce Allen or some negative comment about the organization. Seriously, if you haven't seen this, take two minutes and go to their Twitter account and look at the responses to every single tweet. I can't, I, I would only, I can only imagine what they're saying if they're reading these responses to these, you know, in some cases, very benign tweets. You know, it's, they congratulated uh, Adrian Peterson yesterday um, from the Washington Redskins Twitter account. Make it eight career 1,000-yard rushing seasons for at Adrian Peterson, hashtag HTTR, and they've got a big graphic, 1,042 rushing yards, seventh in the NFL, big picture of Adrian Peterson. There are 1,700 likes. Um, There are 288 retweets and 371 responses. Let me just read you the first five responses because they're all the same. Uh, That's really cool. Now let's get to what really needs to be done. Hashtag fire Bruce Allen. Uh, Next response. Great. Hashtag fire Bruce Allen. Next one. Hashtag fire Bruce Allen. And then the next one is hashtag fire Bruce Allen written seven times. Then it's nice job, Adrian. Fire Bruce Allen. Uh, 12 crappy seasons for Bruce in the NFL, hashtag fire Bruce Allen. That's all, sell the team is another one. Sell the team, Dan Snyder. I've never seen a Redskins movement, fan movement like this, never. Never. So much for apathy. I know. Look on the bright side. 
Yeah, you just wonder how many uh, of what percentage of that fan base or used to be fan base uh, that really is. Anyway, Cam, thanks for the tweet. Um, look, I can only speak for myself. Every day, each show that I do, it's just every day is like this. You know, how am I feeling today? What do I want to talk about today? I don't have an agenda. I'm totally open to changing my mind if the information changes or if I change, which happens every once in a while. Um, but the Redskins aren't close, Cam. They haven't been really close at any point during the Dan Snyder era. They haven't been close. Uh, t- to be honest, the six years before Dan Snyder purchased the team, they weren't very good and weren't very close. But 139, 180, and 1, that's the record of the franchise during his ownership. Two playoff wins, and one of them came in 1999, and that wasn't really a season of his doing because he didn't take the team over until midway through that season. The feeling about the owner and the team right now by the fan base or what's left of it, the media, NFL fans in general, league office, everybody, is universal and it's totally justifiable. It is that the Redskins are among the worst franchises in all of professional sports. You know, you can debate it. You know, you can say the Knicks, the Raiders, the Marlins. I mean, you can go through a handful, probably a half dozen to a dozen franchises. The Redskins are in that group. You know, they may not be the worst, um, but they're among the worst. And they are a source of constant local and national ridicule for many things, um, most of them deserved. Some, like the name, not deserved, in my opinion. But they are widely recognized for losing, and losing in unseemly and mortifying ways. It's who they are. I mean, there isn't enough lipstick and perfume to make them look or smell any differently. And, and by the way, on a somewhat different subject, but related to the, the Redskins and the feeling that everyone has about them right now, I personally don't feel it my duty to make ownership accountable. I don't think that way. Um, and But I don't have a problem with those that do. Zabe tweeted out yesterday, until Dan and Bruce show their faces or at least give an interview, then it's incumbent upon those of us with a pulpit to keep hammering away. Don't you get it? They want people like you, like Cam as an example, my, yes. the guy that tweeted me. They want people like you, Cam, to say move on or lighten up. It's their strategy. You are their ally when you do this. You know what? Zabe's right. There's truth to it. But it's not why I'm hammering away at them or being mean to them. It's just how I feel as a longtime fan. I think they are dysfunctional. I think they are arrogant. I don't think they're very smart. And more than anything else, and this is the sad part and the sad truth, more likely than not, it's never going to change. You know what's the saying? A leopard doesn't change its spots. Dan Snyder doesn't think he's the problem, has never thought he was the problem. So what makes you think he'll change at 54 years old? I hope for it. I do, but I'm not expecting it. But, hey, I choose to continue to follow the team, not just because I'm doing this podcast or I'm in the media. I'm not going to stop watching them. It's become my habit. I'm not spending dime one. I haven't spent dime one on the team in a long, long time. This past season, Aaron, I think I mentioned this on a previous podcast, was the first year since I was five years old that I haven't been to a Redskins game, home game. First time since I was five years old. It's not, um, it, it's, it, it didn't matter enough to me. Like, I'm not even, it didn't even occur to me until somebody 
said, did you go to Sunday's game? I said, no. And then I thought about it. I'm like, I haven't been to a game yet this year. And I didn't end up going to um, a game this year. I, I just have no interest in, in going, but I'm never going to stop watching. Um, it's part of my, you know, fall habit. And, and I'll never stop hoping, you know, I, I don't, I'm definitely more apathetic than I've been, uh, in recent years. I've gone through these phases like many of you have. Um, and I'm resigned to what I said the other day that the best it's ever going to be, uh, is, you know, occasionally having a year that you get somewhat excited about, you know, a nine and seven or a 10 and six year, probably not 11 wins. I mean, when it's been 27 years, uh, so they're the only team in the league over this stretch that hasn't won 11 games, but you know, every four or five years, you know, a nine and seven, 10 and six wild card, or maybe even a division champion and home game, and then, you know, lose and that's it. And in the moment, you know, if things are trending upwards, you'll get excited about maybe, Hey, maybe they they got a little bit of a run in them, but I, you know, the league's designed to produce those, you know, one in five seasons. That's that or one in four seasons. That's the rate for him. You know, 20 years for uh, five playoff seasons, one every four years. So occasional limited success is the best I can hope for. But I guess I just said it, Cam. That's why I'm critical. And as you say, mean, because I'm resigned to the fact that it's never going to be any different, but it won't stop me from watching. It's what I'll do. Um, I went to the Maryland game last night. Aaron was there. The Terps beat 24th ranked Nebraska 74 to 72 on a Jalen Smith floater with 3.8 seconds left. It was the first win for Maryland over a ranked opponent in nearly three years. Yep. Now to be fair, two years ago, they only played two games against ranked opponents. So whatever. Uh, but it's been a while. Um, maybe it's just me and I don't want to be the wet blanket blanket on a significant win, but beating Nebraska in basketball when you're Maryland, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. It shouldn't like I'm sitting in the arena last night and I'll get to what, why, you know, uh, one of the real issues I had with last night, I don't know why the, the, the program can't fix this, but I'm thinking to myself, they're 24th ranked and we're going to be, you know, we need this win. We need a big win. But when did we get to the point where beating Nebraska was a big deal in basketball? I understand the win was a big one in the context of the moment. The moment being this season right now in particular. You know, the last few weeks they lost at home to Seton Hall, which would have been, as it turns out, a quality resume win. Seton Hall's really playing well. They beat St. John's. Uh, they, they were the first team to beat St. John's. Did they kill Xavier last night? I think they killed Xavier last night. Um, look that up for me. I thought that that's what they did last night. Uh, but they didn't win that game against Seton Hall at home. Um, personally, uh, I'm not a big fan of the way Mark schedules around the holidays. Maryland played two games in 18 days. They beat Xavier yes. last night, right? 80-70. Yeah, um, so Seton Hall is on a roll here. Yep. Um, I'm not a big fan of the way he schedules around the holidays. You know, they 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 played two games in 18 days, uh, the least amount of activity of any Big Ten team during the final exam portion of the schedule. And I think that Seton Hall game, they were just out of sync. They hadn't well, played. That's what Turgeon said after the game. I know. Well, schedule differently. Right. You know, finals don't take 11 days. 
There were 11 days off before the Seton Hall game. That's a lot. And then another week off before they played their next game against Radford. That's a lot. In the meantime, every other Big Ten game, uh, Big Ten uh, team, and they've got finals that their schools too were playing more frequently. But anyway, back to last night. Um, the Terps had a couple of, of decent wins going into last night, but not, nothing they? nothing substantial. I was going to say they they had. Hofstra is going to look pretty good at the Hofstra's end of the year. Hofstra's going to be fine. All right. Radford doesn't look that bad. I was going to say, Radford but, but beat Notre Dame in Texas. The best wins are Hofstra and Radford. Yeah, and right. that's why that game was important. Because yes, true. Over the past three years, they have lost that game every time. Uh, last night was needed. It was needed. In the big context, in the context of this, it was big because they beat a ranked team and a true veteran team, Nebraska is. I mean, Nebraska's you, a good team. Unique don't, in college basketball. Sell, They've got some yeah, Don't sell them short. No, they're good. I, I if you recall last year going into the tournament, I really wanted Nebraska to get in cuz I thought they could have done damage in the tournament last year. Anyway, losing would have been, you know, it would have been one of those moments where the Maryland fan base, which right now is not very excited, um it, but it would have brought major pessimism from uh, into play it would have brought it into play anyway look this Maryland team is talented uh, I've said this before it's absolutely a team of enough talented players that should be a, a top 25 team if not higher top 20 top 15 a tournament team definitely talent wise a team that could do some damage in March and if it doesn't it's going to be disappointing Jalen Smith and Bruno Fernando are unique in college basketball from this perspective. It, it, most teams, and I'm talking about great teams, don't have two 6'10 guys that are that versatile offensively. And by the way, Fernando is a true rim protector in college basketball. Beast. 18 and 17 yesterday? A beast. Um, I don't think at this point we use them enough to stretch the floor. I mean, Smith showed he can do it last night. He had big threes. I mean, he can knock down the three, and at 6'10", 6'11", he can truly stretch the floor. He would never, ever be told anything but to take those shots. He'd have a never-ending green light from me with the way he strokes it. And Fernando doesn't shoot enough, in my opinion, from the perimeter. They leave him open. You know, and that when he's at that high post and they sort of initiate some of the, the offense through him at the high post, he never even looks at the basket. Basket. He never looks at it. He's got an excellent stroke. His post plays improve so much. I mean, for those of you that that hammer Turgeon about not developing players enough, look at Fernando one year. In one year, how much different a player he is offensively. He's patient. His feet are a million times better. He's got multiple go-to moves in the post. He's nearly unst- – every team is doubling him, and last night was the first time in several games that they didn't double him every single time he got it. Uh, the coaching staff's done a really nice job with him, but Maryland has NBA talent, first-round talent on its team. They should beat Nebraska at home. I don't care what they're ranked, and I don't care how good they are. They needed to beat Nebraska at home too. I'm not saying it wasn't going to it wasn't going to be easy, um, but they needed that win. A couple of quick things on the game itself. Um, first of all, I've said this so many times when it comes to Maryland basketball in particular. You cannot, in a big city like Washington, with a traffic problem that DC has and the surrounding areas, you cannot start a weeknight game at 6:30. If you do, you are going to have 5,000 p- less people at the game 
People are not going to sit in traffic for 6.30 against Nebraska. They're not going to do it. The crowd was insignificant to start. They listed it at 11,000-plus, um, and you're playing a ranked team. You know, I know it's Nebraska, and nobody's going to get excited about Nebraska. Is there any way, Maryland, that you can figure out and go to the Big Ten and say, hey, we are the only big city team in this league, the only one, you know, can we play the later game? And if you insist on it from a television per, uh, standpoint that we have to play a couple of 630 games, can you wait till our students are back so at least we get a crowd? There are two more 630 games on the schedule. One is coming a, up, right? No, I think that one's on in fe- there's one February 12th against Purdue and then one's the last game of the season. That's a Friday game, so that might mitigate it a little bit. Well, I mean, I, I just would make the look. The Big Ten doesn't want Maryland to have a half-filled arena. Right. They don't want that's not good for the the league, and you don't have these issues in Bloomington, Indiana, and West Lafayette, and Lansing, and 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 Madison, Wisconsin. You just don't let them play the early games. Let your big city team play the late games, so the people can get to the game. And if you insist on everybody playing an early game at some point, at least allow Maryland to do it when their students are back. So you at least get some atmosphere into the building. There was none last night. None. And here's the thing about Maryland. I've said this many times. It's as good a building as you will see in college basketball when the people are there and into it. It is great, and it provides a significant home court advantage. They didn't have it last night. Um, Mark Turgeon, after the game, said, we're going to play. He said he told his group after the game, after the Seton Hall game, that we're going to have 14 to 15 games like the Seton Hall game, and we just got to figure out a way to win those, and we won one of them last night. I don't know why they're going to play 14 to 15 of these games. I know he will because they've been doing it for years. I just think they've got some talent that they could blow some people out. Can't they blow some people out? Like, I mean, when they play fast, and they didn't play fast enough last night, and they controlled the glass, um, I just would like to see them hammer some people at home in particular. They're good enough to do it. Uh, I love how hard his teams play. It's my favorite part about Turgeon. Those, I mean, all of you just want me to just kill him and – you not, none of most of you don't think he's a very good coach and that Maryland is can do better and that they have underperformed um the thing that i love most about him is he does have an intensity about him that the players take on more times than not it's 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 a gary like competitiveness i love that about mark he is a tough hard-nosed competitor he's into it he is so into it. I don't like his zone offense, and I never have. I don't understand why they can't figure out how to handle a 1-3-1 zone. They turned it over two to three times because they didn't, They didn't. I mean, quite honestly, and this is the youth coach coming out in me, so take it for what it's worth. But, you know, you start with just understanding where the players should be against a 1-3-1 zone. They should be 2-1-2. And then you got a lot of stuff after that you can do, but... They uh they're trying to screen it and they got two players next to one and they're turning it over left and right and then finally on the final possession Jalen Smith comes out and looks like he's going to set a ball screen and then drops to the middle of the zone the middle of the zone it was nice to finally have somebody in the middle of that zone he caught it and he hit a floater and if the defense had 
sort of come to him, uh, then he had two players open uh, in each on, on each side as he attacked the rim. Um, I, uh, oh, everybody was talking about not putting somebody on the ball at the end of the game, like the Michigan game last year, Nebraska had it 3.8 seconds left after Jalen Smith hit the floater to give him a 74, 72 lead last year at Michigan. They didn't put somebody in the ball. It was, it allowed Michigan to throw the ball to half court and then get to the rim for, uh, the game winner. Um, and, uh, or was it free throws that they ended? They ended up fouling him, I think, at the end. I forget how it ended at Michigan. But yes. the criticism was he didn't put somebody on the ball. And I said at the time, I prefer if you put somebody on the ball because it means more times than not, with less than five seconds, the first pass is going to come into the backcourt. Right. And then they got a long way to go. But not every coach does it that way. He didn't do it last night, but he did have a nice defensive trap. Um, they trapped the guy right when he crossed half court in one of those trap areas on each side of the floor and it made it impossible for Nebraska to get a shot off Lindo, uh, Ricky Lindo, the freshman from, uh, Northwest, uh, from Wilson, um, made a really nice, um, play at the end. So it was a good win. Now I hope that Rutgers on Saturday, we're not sitting there 64, 63 with a minute to go, but I have a feeling we will, we will be. I do. No, no reason to believe any otherwise. Um, before we bring Joe Banner uh, into the conversation, let me tell you about Window Nation. Now, Window Nation's current deal is continuing, and their current deal is the triple zero sale. Zero down payment, zero payments, and 0% interest until 2020. But that's not all. Window Nation's triple zero sale is a triple deal. You'll also get $200 off every window, any size, any style. And with a whole house full of windows, Window Nation will pay your heating bill until the new windows are installed. You'll save hundreds, even thousands of dollars right now. And who knows how much more with energy savings and higher home value for years to come. Window Nation windows give the greatest gift. And inviting warm, cozy, comfortable home. So visit windownation.com today for the triple zero sale. Zero down payment, zero payments, and zero percent interest for 12 months. And $200 off each window, no minimum purchase required. Plus, Window Nation will pay for your heating bill until the new windows are installed. Save today, save tomorrow, save forever. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. That's 866-90-NATION or shop windownation.com and tell them I told you to call. Let's welcome in Joe Banner uh, to the podcast. Joe, for uh, those that don't know, and most of you do, was a longtime NFL executive, team president of the Eagles for 17, 18 years, then was with the Browns for a few years and I've been following you on on Twitter, and I think you came on the radio show once, maybe two or three years ago. And I, I've been thinking about you recently as it relates to to this particular team right now here in D.C. and, and getting someone like you um, with your background and experience get your thoughts on on what's going on. And we'll start with with that from your perspective, from from your experienced view, um, Joe. What's wrong with the Redskins, and can it be fixed? Well, the answer, can it be fixed, is yes. <laughs> but I think it takes a, a mindset and a willingness to make the uh, decisions and the changes necessary to get it fixed. And I think they have to start with a, you know, why isn't it working? And if they have any illusions that it is working, then that's a real big problem. But I think it's obvious it's not working. So the question is, why isn't it working? And the reality is, teams that win in the NFL, the, how to do it is easy. The doing it is really hard. The, the easy part is you need an excellent coach with a good staff, and you need someone who can make strong, consistent, good decisions about players. 
Now, finding the people that can do that well is very hard. But knowing that that's what you're doing is not hard. And I just, I would challenge them to step back and ask them in those two areas, do they have the people in place to compete with the really smart teams in the league? There's 10 teams that are kind of smarter than the rest of the league. Are they positioned with the people they have to make decisions equal to or better than those, say, 10 top smart teams? I don't think the answer to that's yes right now. It, uh, it clearly isn't yes. Um, but you do need an owner, Joe, don't you, that is capable of identifying that quality, that, that competence level, um, and then empowering it. And that seems to have been the problem here for a long period of time. So that, that, that it doesn't it start there? Yes. I mean, I used to say when I was the president of the Eagles, I had a fair amount of authority there that the most important thing I did was decide who else got to work there. Because there's nobody, and I don't even really care if you're you know, a Hall of Fame head coach or general manager, uh, there's nobody that can succeed without surrounding themselves with other people that either complement themselves or add to themselves. And I don't think there's any names you can exclude from that. So the number one thing an owner has to do and has to do effectively is decide in a couple of key positions who works for him and then allow them to figure out who the people are that should work for those people. And, you know, if the co- if the owner gets those decisions right, you're going to have a good team. Now, getting from good to great is hard, but you're going to have a good team. And, you know, that is exactly where it starts. And if those decisions aren't made right, uh, then you're going to be sitting here trying to figure out, you know, what do we do next? So let's get specific, because for the first 10 years of his ownership, Dan Snyder um, empowered uh, to a certain degree, and empowered would probably be uh, a, a, an exaggeration. Vinny Serrato as his key, you know, talent evaluator and and roster decision maker, um, and that didn't work clearly. And and typically, what they did, Joe, as you remember, is they overpaid by you know 20 percent above retail aging stars that didn't fit. Um, you know, with their scheme or their locker room, and that failed. And then he brought in Bruce Allen, who was much more frugal um, and had some league experience. And for the last nine years, that hasn't worked. Um, specific to Bruce Allen, your thoughts on him as the lead person in an organization? Yeah, you know, I worked with Bruce on committees in the league. I know Bruce well. I think if you're dealing on the business side of the football side, so that's really strategy and cap, uh, Bruce is strong and smart uh, and capable of competing with the better people in the league. I think if you're talking about the player selection and the building of a team element of the football side, it just doesn't seem to be compelling evidence as we look at the decisions they make, the time we've had uh, and he's had uh, to get the job done, which is really the test. It's not my opinion or your opinion. I mean, the beauty of working in football for me was – they keep score, and in the end, you won or you lost. And if you won, you're doing a good job, and if you lost, you're doing a bad job, and there are no other explanations. And I like that. I didn't like you know, being subject to somebody else's whim or somebody else's evaluation of how I was doing. I just wanted to be measured by tangible results. So you know, it's hard to step back and look at the role that Bruce has played and the way the team has performed and say this is good enough or we're smart enough to compete against the very best teams in the league. I don't, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the level of ire now um, among the fan base. And when I say among the fan base, it's eroded significantly, Joe. You know, this was one of the proud franchises and one of the, you know, more passionate fan bases in the league for a long time. And, 
you know, the the attendance was was in, insignificant this year. They didn't sell out a game for the first time in forever, at least, you know, based on the reported uh, numbers. The TV numbers are down significantly when it comes to local uh, television ratings for their games. And there's been a movement, a social media movement, with the fan base that's left that still cares you know, hashtag fire Bruce Allen has gained incredible steam. It's been a trending hashtag on social media. Um, and I'm just wondering, based on what you know about Dan Snyder, do you think he cares? You know, again, got to know Dan through serving at owners meetings and different committees. And I would have said to you, the answer is absolutely yes, without any hesitation. But I'm also a believer that actions speak louder than words. And Dan's a smart enough guy to be able to look around and go, listen, we are not consistently making good decisions that allow us to compete at the highest level. And, you know, you can find a way, especially if you like somebody and feel they deserve, you know, ample opportunity or time to rationalize, you know, a year, two years. You know, you have some injuries, you have some bad breaks, you have this or you that. But once you've given somebody a long enough period of time, it's reasonable to interpret that the cost in your own mind of making change is not worth the benefits of possibly winning more. And so I think it's a legitimate question, although I can tell you my interactions with Dan and the way he talks about things is that he absolutely cares. But he's got to demonstrate that with the actions that don't make it seem like it's okay to just be okay or sometimes not even okay, you know, on the field. And, you know, we're not seeing that happen. Is it true when people say, and I've said this, um, is it true when people say that quality and competence, people of, of quality and competence don't want to work in Washington, that it's hard now for the Redskins because they don't just throw money at it, right, Joe? I mean, for years it was, you know, they, they were marks. It, was, it wasn't about asking how much it cost. It was immediately the default was to pay 20% above retail, and that solved a lot of the problems with people they wanted. But is it fair to say now that most quality and competent people don't want to work in Washington? Yeah, I hate to I hate to say it because it sounds harsh, but I think the truth is that if people had uh, multiple opportunities, it would be unlikely that the Redskins would be on the top of the list of where they would want to go for the reasons we're discussing. I mean, you know, ownership plays an important but limited role. And then, you know, the, the, let's say you're a head coach or let's say you're even a, a coaching staff person or somebody looking for a scouting position. Uh, you want to be where you feel like there's a realistic chance of winning. There are very few people in the league that don't care desperately about winning. One of them talking about players or people in front offices or owners. It gets portrayed sometimes differently, but that really is the reality. So when you go somewhere where you're not feeling overly hopeful about being able to win, which means it's not a lot of fun. These jobs are incredibly fun when you're doing well and nothing but incredibly stressful when you're not doing well. So the idea that you don't have hope and you can feel optimistic that this team is likely to be in a good place soon uh, is definitely going to discourage some people. Now you get the head coach, there's only 32 jobs. It's not like somebody isn't going to come in and take the job that at least you can reasonably predict will do well, and same with the general manager. But if you're asking, is it harder? Are they at a disadvantage right now when it comes to recruiting people to come and work there? That is a yes. Does the league care um, about the Redskins at one point in this league, a marquee franchise, and still based on, you know, 
uh, valuations uh, created by uh, magazines like Forbes, as an example, and we know what those valuations are worth. They're not worth anything unless there's a market for it. But um, is it important for the league to to get Washington back to being, you know, a relevant franchise, or does it care? Well, if the league had a, uh, a wish list that it could make that no one would see, and it wouldn't do anything other than be a wish list. The league just does not interfere in individual team operations the way some people think. Uh, ideally, places like Washington that are strategically important and large markets like L.A.'s and Chicago's and Philly's and New York, uh, from a business perspective, are better for the league when those teams are successful and iconic. But I want to be careful in saying that. Uh, contrary to the way some people try to portray things, there isn't an owner in this league that's going to let the league in any way interfere in their operation, their franchise, and their independence of it. So the league could have that fantasy because it's mainly responsible for doing business things at the league-wide level, and the league is more successful when there are more eyes and more impact in large and strategic marketplaces. That would be on their wish list. But that does not mean they're going to do anything or in any way have any conversations or interfere anything that could uh, make that all happen. You know, it's it's gotten to the point where I think a lot of fans would would prefer the league to intervene at some <laughs> point, but I understand what you're saying. Um, let's play uh, fantasy here for a moment. If If Dan Snyder came to you and said, Joe, I want you to be a consultant, where do I turn here? Who's the football person, you know, the team president slash GM to go after, um, and then, you know, potentially a, a an excellent football coach as well? What advice would you give him? Well, I, I actually think that the coaching potential people out there, um, because there's been so many changes in recent years, is very challenging. And I've been encouraging. I mean, we've been hiring seven or eight coaches a year, and maybe one is working out. I mean, the, the, the classroom just three years ago was seven new coaches, and Doug Peterson is the only one that hasn't already been fired. It's so amazing. That's six out of seven. So I've been encouraging people to do some, un, some non-traditional thinking about the head coaches. So I hired Andy Reid in Philadelphia, who'd never even been a coordinator. So look at that pool of people instead of just the coordinators. I'm a believer that there are some people in college, there are some people that won't work in the NFL that are in college, but there are some college coaches that are worthy of consideration. I mean, I've, I've just in the last few days kind of put out Matt Rule, who's at Baylor yeah. now, who was at Temple when I was in Philadelphia. I mean, these guys, that, and he has a little bit of background in the NFL. Um, when you interview head coaches, the hardest thing to project is their ability to really lead an entire program, hire people, and really manage them well. None of them have really done that. If you get a head coach who's been in college, and especially a head coach who's turned around multiple programs, What's so very hard to project about an offensive coordinator, for example, in terms of their leadership skills, is very easy to project when you're dealing with a dynamic college head coaching. So I think there are a couple of pools in the coaching ranks that aren't really being taken advantage of right now. The general manager is the opposite. We've had so few changes that I actually think there's a lot of very talented people out there that deserve an opportunity to be general managers uh, who aren't getting them because they're kind of standing in place while the league is kind of letting general managers have endless uh, opportunities to prove themselves. Um, and uh, there, there are a group of young guys out there that are working in some of the franchises that are 
kind of turning themselves around here in the last few years or have had sustained success in a place like Seattle. You watch what's going on in Indianapolis right now. You look at the Philadelphia Eagles and the sustained success they've had. All of those people, all those organizations, and there are more, have tiers of people in them that have done outstanding jobs, been part of winning organizations, and at least deserve an opportunity to stand in front of some owners and present why they think they could be the next general manager. I would not be afraid of that pool of people at all. Give me some names in that pool of people. What would Who would be the names you would give to a Dan Snyder if you were consulting the Redskins? Well, I'm not going to give you exact names, but I, I think that if you just go, like I just mentioned, Seattle, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, um, those are places in which there's a lot of depth, even below the general managers. Of course, in Philadelphia, you have a structure where you have Howie Roseman was really a final say, and someone else who's really the general manager. I mean, there's tiers of people in that organization that are very good. Uh, Chris Ballard has not only done an outstanding job in Indianapolis with the decisions he's made and the turnaround, but he actually brought some people into that organization uh, from other organizations, by the way, including one that came from Seattle. Uh, that are really good people. The Seattle organization is just outstanding in the depth of talent they have uh, with their player personnel people. And again, I wouldn't limit it to those, but you know, if you want to look it up, there there are very strong names below the top people in all those three organizations, uh, as well as others around the league. It's it very easy to do a minimal amount of research and come up with some very strong names to interview. Sure for general manager positions. Um, you know, there was a decision. It, it wasn't even a decision, but there could have been a decision that the, the franchise may have been faced with a few years ago. Everyone in the new in the organization knew that Sean McVay was a star and was a future head coach and potentially a really good one. Um, and you had Jay Gruden here, you know, through two years, uh, three years at the time, I guess, um, that had had very li- had no success, mediocre record, uh, one one playoff season in his first three. As a team president, would you have ever thought about elevating the offensive coordinator to head coach um, and moving on from from the head coach in that spot? It would have been odd. It would have been outside the box thinking McVay had only been a coordinator for a year. But how would you have handled a situation like that? Well, you know, 2020 hindsight, that's clearly what they should have done. <laughs> I can't tell you, with McVeigh only having been there one year, Jay only three years into his tenure, uh, would I have actually done that in those shoes? I don't think that's fair. Should they have had a serious conversation about yes? You know, remember at that point, McVeigh is, what, 30 years old, maybe right. 29 years old. A very difficult decision to make. Um, and I can't tell you, in trying to be fair to the people who are making the decision, that I would have done that in their shoes. Um, but, you know, that's a little different, though, when it gets to year four or five of Jay's tenure and now McVeigh's taking head coaching interviews. That's the question in my mind at that moment. I think he'd been there three years at that point. Um, you know, should there have been a different discussion then about should we stay the course uh, or should we be making a change to somebody we have right in the building? I mean, the Rams answer that question, yes. The Redskins answer that question, no. The Rams got it right. The Redskins got it wrong. One team is winning. One team's still struggling. <laughs> you know, it come, when it comes to things like vision and anticipation, 
it just seems that this organization has been behind the eight ball um, for a long, long time now. I mean, I, I know and I've heard you weigh in on Kirk Cousins, and I think you did it with me, and, and now's not the time to make the case for Kirk Cousins, but they certainly had a chance to sign him at a low number, and when they didn't, they certainly had a chance to trade him um, and get value back for him. But I, I did, on the GM front real quickly, would you think outside the box like Denver did in hiring a John Lynch who had who came right from the broadcast booth into that position? See, I probably wouldn't just because I think there's really, really good, I'm going to say more traditional mm-hmm. uh, candidates that I think are ready to go and, you know, craving an opportunity. You know, I I would be picking from that pool. The coaching thing is different. I really think we've proven that current pool is so used that we need to think a little non-traditionally if we're really going to get somebody who's going to be exceptional. Remember, we're trying to get to great. You know, yeah. there's a lot of guys that can come in and do okay. I mean, I think Jay Gruden can do okay. But if we're really trying to get a coach in who really is a difference maker, who elevates everything by his performance, uh, I think in the coaching ranks, you really have to think outside the box to find that. I think there are a lot of guys in the general manager's position, uh, and you couldn't decide which one to bet on until you sat down face-to-face and really talked to them and listened to how they think and what they do. Uh, that can do the job. You discussed Matt Rule, and he did a phenomenal job at Temple. And 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 uh, you know the uh, the opposite of, uh, of that, I guess to a certain degree, even though he is a college coach, would be to go and pay a bunch of money for a Jim Harbaugh. Um, your thoughts about whether or not a he'll be back in the in the league as a head coach, and b would that be something that an organization that's never had any sort of discipline and structure or it's been a long time since they've had that at the head coaching position should consider yes but it would require a complete change of mindset of dan and if bruce was still there in that structure of bruce i mean these jim harbaugh type of coaches you basically say how do we support you not how are we parallel to you, not how do we boss you, and how do we manage you. We say, we're entrusting this to you, and how can we support you to have the success that we want you to have. That is very, very far from how the franchise has operated for a very, very long time. But, you know, Jim Arba has won every place he's been. I think he's going to continue to win every place he's going to be. And I do not think he'll be back in the league this year, although it's possible, but I do think at some point he'll be back in the NFL. Um, you were in Philadelphia at the time uh, as as a longtime, you know, born and raised Washingtonian and Redskins fan, and then you know, being in the media for the last fifteen years. I think the single biggest mistake that Dan Snyder made was moving on from Marty Schottenheimer after one year. I don't think that the organization since Dan Snyder's owned it has ever been close. Uh, as close as they were with Marty to, you know, having a stable organization and a winning team. Uh, do you agree or disagree with that? Yeah, I mean, listen, I I didn't consider Marty um, innovative, and I thought we were entering an era where innovation was crucial. Right. Um, so Marty probably isn't my guy, although he certainly deserved, you know, more than a year. But I think the bigger point that Marty represented was what we were just touching upon when you yes. asked me about Jim Harbaugh. You know, it it is a totally different mindset to have a head coach like a Marty, like a Jim Harbaugh, like an Andy Reid, like a Bill Belichick. The guys that when someday we have a conversation about what kind of coaches are at the very upper echelon or maybe even guys that uh, deserve Hall of Fame consideration, 
these guys don't fit in the mindset that the Redskins have had for as long as Dan has run the team. And if some moment he woke up and said, you know what, um, I'm willing to make that shift. I recognize that if I can find the right guy, it's the best path to success. Um, then you can have a serious conversation about how long you know should Marty have been there, or how do I get a Jim Harbaugh here, or a John Harbaugh, or the next you know Jim Harbaugh, or John Harbaugh. But it it would take a, a volcanic change of mindset for those types of people to want to be in Washington or for the organization to be looking for that type of person. It would take a massive change in personality. I mean, you, you can't be that narcissistic and then and then move a- away from that. More times than not, based on life experience that you've had and, and a lot of us have had. I want to move to the league real quickly before I let you run, because I think it's been a fascinating year in the league, um, in that you had that Monday night 54-51 to Chiefs-Rams game and the offensive explosion that we had for much of the year and the discussion about this is where the league is heading. And then all of a sudden, over the last month, maybe five, six weeks of the season, you know, Dallas, what they did to New Orleans, the Bears, what they did to the Rams, um, and you've got great defensive teams. And, you know, you don't always have great defensive teams, Joe, in the league. This year you do. Um, Do you think – that the that when we get to this postseason starting on Saturday, that that defense as it has over a long period of time wins when you get to the postseason. Do you think that that will be the case, or that these great offensive teams will prevail? So when we were in Philadelphia uh, talking about how to build teams, we felt that you had to have a top five-ish unit on at least one side of the ball and be at least solid on the other side of the ball to compete with the best teams in the league. And for many years, the conventional wisdom, and usually supported by who was standing at the end of the season, was you were better off if that, let's say, top five unit was defense, and then your solid good unit, not great, but good unit, was on offense. Right. I think that's changed. And even in that old era, there were offensive teams that won Super Bowls, but you were more likely to win it being a defensive team. That's right. So my comment means a defensive team can absolutely win the Super Bowl still, but I now think it's shifted so you're slightly more likely to win if the offense is your top, top unit and your defense is good. But it absolutely can still be done either way. And I think that's a combination of the rule changes, which we've seen taking place over many years, and really, the implementation of these, I'll call them spread concepts into the offense, which, even though people have been saying this for years, they weren't doing it, really requires you to cover every inch of ground on defense. It really takes advantage of the full width and length of the field in a way that makes it much harder to play defense. So I am still a big believer in how important defense is. I won't be shocked if a good defensive team were to win the Super Bowl. I think it's more likely what we saw last year where we saw a fairly high-scoring game between Atlanta and New England, and those are the teams that are standing at the end. But it's not so out of balance that it's just you know one or the other. It's just a slight advantage in terms of a probability that I think has shifted from defense being a little bit more important to offense being a little bit more important. But either can get it done. Joe, how quickly you forget that last year was Philadelphia over New England, not yeah. Atlanta over New England. Oh. But that was a high-scoring game too. <laughs> um, all right, real quickly, NFC. Can anyone go to New Orleans and win in the Superdome? 
No. In the AFC, if I told you that you had to pick the top three seeded teams, Kansas City, New England, and Houston for the AFC champion, or the bottom three, Baltimore, Chargers, and Colts, which of those two groups would you pick the Super Bowl participant to come out of? Well, you're killing me there because I've got so many former Eagle people that I'm rooting for in both of those uh, groups. Um, I think I'm going to go with Kansas City, but just a smidge over uh, my Baltimore boys. What, what do you make of the Ravens in the way they're playing? I, 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 I'm fascinated by it. I thought they were the best defensive team in the league last year, and they didn't make the postseason on that fourth and twenty, you know, bomb at the end by the Bengals in the final play on the final play of the game. But I, I, the the way they are playing football offensively is really interesting. It's much different than the way you know the Redskins played with Griffin in 2012, or the Niners did with Kaepernick. It's it's really totally reliant on on running the football and, and eating clock. Yeah, I think that this is unsustainable. I think that Lamar Jackson is going to have to get better over time at passing the ball for them to succeed. But in the short term, where we haven't really seen the answer to it, and they're playing so well defensively, uh, I think they can beat anybody at any time. Um, I do think that if they're smart when they get in the playoffs, we'll see them pass a little bit more early in the game, fairly safe stuff, just to help keep the defense a little bit honest. We did see an adjustment last week when they played the Browns, where the Browns squeezed the defensive line in a little bit and started bringing the corners in to play the run, and it looked pretty effective. So we may be seeing the beginning of what's the defensive response to that going to be we'll see if san diego i'm sure watch that tape and picks up on that this week but i think what lamar does combined with just a modest improvement in his passing ability uh, could be really dynamic but he has to get better passing the ball for them to win with him long term is my opinion i wonder if john harbaugh believes in it it's impossible to make the switch here but that he believes that his chances to win the whole thing right now would be better with Joe Flacco? Well, that's an interesting question. I got asked last week in an interview uh, if the Ravens were losing by yep. two points, five points, whatever, with two minutes to go in the game, do you think they bring in Flacco for the last drive or they leave Lamar? I said I think they leave Lamar in, but that's different than saying, what do you think gives them the best chance to win? And I would actually say the answer to that would be to bring Flacco in. Well, I think if they get behind two scores in a game, it'd be very hard for them to come back. Uh, and they haven't mm-hmm. they haven't been in that position since Jackson took over. They also played, you know, up until recently, a lot of bad defensive teams there for the first three or four weeks uh, when they were rolling. Um, and I'd even throw the Chiefs in there. I don't think the Chiefs are good enough defensively um, to win it. It sounds like you do, though. Well, I'm worried about the Chiefs defense for sure. Here's the only thing I'm counting on. <clears throat> They do get pressure on the quarterback. They're just breaking down behind that. Um, And so that gives me some faith that they can at least play defense well enough for the offense to carry the day. But don't take that prediction as if I'm not really worried about their defense. I mean, it really is not played well. But I'm hoping that the fact that they can get pressure on the quarterback almost against any line – you know, will help them enough that they can outscore somebody and win these games now, 38 to 30 kind of things. You give the Eagles any chance of making a, a, a run of, a, of a win or two or not? You know, I, I think they're legitimately the underdog, and they should be. 
but do I give him any chance? Absolutely. I mean, it's a talented team. It's well coached. And the Foles thing is almost hard to explain, but also hard to deny. I mean, he's playing really well. They're really responding to him. So, um, you know, forced to predict, I wouldn't expect them to win a couple of games, but is it possible? Certainly. What would they do if he got if he took them on another Super Bowl run? What would they do at the position? I think they signed once to a long-term deal. <laughs> that answers that one. Hey, thank you so much. Happy New Year to you, and I really appreciate the time. Same to you. My pleasure. All right, thanks to Joe Banner. Uh, I enjoyed that conversation. If you're thinking about new office space, you're working from home and it's hard because of the kids or the dogs, and you live in Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Upper Northwest D.C., I want you to consider Launch Workplaces in Bethesda. They have beautiful, new, fully furnished offices, conference rooms, co-working desks, high-speed internet, complimentary drinks, a cafe, uh, free parking, 24-7 access. It's the perfect solution if you live in that area. You know, if you live just over the bridge in Northern Virginia, McLean, Great Falls, Vienna. Uh, It's not that far away either. It's just on the other side of uh, the American Legion Bridge off Clara Barton Parkway. It's a beautiful new space. You can find out all you need to know know at launchworkplaces.com. That's launchworkplaces.com. And if you call um, 240-800-6714, that's 240-800-6714, and tell them that I told you to call, they'll give you an exclusive free two-day trial. You don't if you're not interested in an office and you just want a desk, that's fine too, but it really works out um great place, easy to get work done from launchworkplaces.com or 240-800-6714. All right, let's bring in Scott Van Pelt for his weekly visit. Scott uh was um, rather uh, passionate the other night on SportsCenter talking about the Redskins, which we'll get to uh, in a moment. Um, I want to start with with Maryland. I was there last night, and I, I, I want to start with just a, a, a pet peeve, I guess I would describe it as, and I don't understand why these things can't be addressed. Um, why... You're, and you're just going to tell me to, to be quiet and that you don't have anything to do with it. And so I'll just acknowledge, I know you don't have anything to do with it, but I'd ask you why they can't do anything about the start time for their games at home in the Big Ten. 6.30 is never going to work in this city with the traffic problems they have, but it can totally work in West Lafayette, Bloomington, and you know places like that, Madison, Wisconsin. Does Maryland it has has do you have any idea if it's ever been an issue with Maryland that they've pushed with the league? All right, a couple of things. Number one, you're right. I have nothing to do with when the Big Ten Network starts games. I, they, that that never <laughs> that memo never crossed my desk since I don't work for the Big Ten Network. Um, I share your frustration. It's 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 obvious, and it looks the the. The I hate this term, but this is, what, this is true. The optics of it, it just looks terrible. The students are away, and it's a 6.30 start time, and you get heckled like Van Pogg. I thought Maryland was basketball school. Well, come to D.C., and you know people make comparisons. Well, it would never be like this in, in Kansas. Of course not. It's Lawrence, Kansas <laughs> at 9 o'clock at night. It's, it's idiotic to make any comparison to that. Your question, it, it, I assume, boils down to this. I don't assume in West Lafayette or in Madison or in East Lansing 
or any place they want a 6.30 start time because it's harder to get there. But it's going to be hardest to get there in Washington, D.C., period. And I think it must just be, sorry, you're in this league, and these are when on occasion you're going to be playing games. So it's just it's just going to be what it is. If I'm Turgeon, if I'm Maryland, I go to Delaney in the Big Ten, and I go, listen, we need as, as few of these as possible because it just isn't feasible in the D.C. area to have people expected to be able to be there, especially not during winter break. Right, and I, I said earlier in the show that if, if you insist on making Maryland play a 6.30 game in College Park, at least do it when the students are back later in the season so you at least have a chance at an atmosphere and a crowd and a legitimate home court advantage. Look, there, it's, it doesn't benefit the Big Ten game to have you know six 7,000 people short of a sellout. And and that's what you're going to get. It just seems so logical. It's like, I don't understand why some of these things can't be discussed and understood by either the school or the league or both of them together prior to doing it. They have two more of these at home at 630 this year. Do they really? Yeah, they've got another one. Um, uh, for, well, they have a 7 o'clock against Indiana next Friday night. You know, 7 o'clock's not great either. It's better than 630, but it's not great. Um, they have one against Purdue at 6.30, uh, and they have one. Aaron, you told me there was one Minnesota, other one. Minnesota, final Minnesota. game of the season. Now, are either one of the – a week a weekend game is no, no, fine. No, no, Th- Those are both weekday 6.30s. Yeah, you can't you can't do weekdays at 6.30. Uh, what did you think? I agree. I mean, it, it, it's tough, and it, it looks bad. And I assume the Big Ten would just shrug and go, sorry. Yeah, but, they sh- but that doesn't make any sense to me because it's in their interest – for more people to come to the games, to allow, you know, to make it more accessible and more convenient for people to go to the to the games of the teams in their league. Uh, what did you think right. of Maryland last night? It was their first win over a ranked opponent in three seasons. Well, that's that's a stat that's pretty unacceptable. You know, you gotta you gotta beat good teams, and I I know that the script, I can't tell you how many games in the past three years have followed the same script as last night, where it's competitive, and in the end, you come up two points short. So the fact that they got the win was really big, and I'm sure that there are Maryland basketball fans who would have a hard time with or would make some cynical comment about, oh, man, you know, pretty sad that a win over Nebraska. I never thought it would come to this. Well, then that's, that comment's just dumb and lacks any context. Nebraska's actually good. They've got veteran guys. They've got talent. They're ranked for a reason. Um, they, they Maryland uh, would have put away a lesser team last night, I think, but Nebraska just kept coming. And it was a significant win. It's significant because Nebraska is ranked. It's significant because that win for the resume is, is, is helpful. And it's significant because at this very early juncture of the season, um, you know, to have dropped your second Big Ten game uh, would have been would have been problematic. Because, listen, they're going to lose to people that you don't think they, they, they're supposed to lose to. They could lose to Rutgers this Saturday, and it wouldn't shock me just because of the youth of this team. Um, and the depth of the Big Ten this year is such that every win is going to be very, very necessary. So it was what I thought of it was I'm really happy the script was different at the end. I'm really happy they beat a team that's better than people might think. And I, and I believe it's significant for a young group to, to, to experience the emotion and the, uh, the satisfaction of 
the accomplishment of that win. Yeah, I mean, I think it just would have been a much more significant loss than it was a significant win. I understand the context. I understand they're good and they're a veteran team, and and it's it, it, it it's going to look decent on the resume at the end of the year. I did, and I told you this last night. I did have this sense of. We just beat Nebraska in basketball. We should beat Nebraska in basketball. And that's a bigger picture, you know, program picture I'm, I'm, I'm painting and I'm feeling there. But, I mean, uh-huh. you know, th- this isn't uh, – last night was not some sort of momentous win. No, and I, but, but I don't think anybody's framing it as such. I just think in the, in the context of not of what your perception of – their program historically and Maryland's program historically is it's the it's the context of what's their team right now and what's Maryland's team right now and Maryland needed to get a win can't afford another loss like they had to Seton Hall where Seton Hall's pretty good and that's a game that you expect if you're Maryland you'd win and they weren't able to solve that riddle right and if they would have lost another game in the same kind of frustrating way that would have been really difficult to, to stomach, and so they didn't. So let's let's let us let's let ourselves be happy about it rather than looking at it like, well, we're supposed to beat Nebraska. Well, th- you can't really say that right now, right? Right now, you say, hey, that was a good win. You know, just real quickly, um, and then we'll move to the Redskins. In you know, the Big Ten was not preseason supposed to be this strong, and obviously, it right. had an uh, it had a a non it had non conference success like it hasn't had. In recent years, who's great? Is Michigan great? Is Michigan State great? Are they great teams in college basketball this year? I'm, I'm having a hard time figuring out if there truly is a dominant team in the league. Uh, I think Michigan and Michigan State will both prove to be um, really tough, really tough teams to beat. Uh, Michigan State's got the got experience. Um, they've got a, a, a bunch of guys, you know, and Winston and Langford and Ward, like they got they got guys. Michigan, I, I didn't know they're going to be this good, um, right? But they they're they're surprising to me. Like, are they dominant good? I don't think so. Like, I watched them play at Northwestern, and they, you know, they they won a game in the way college basketball almost always seems to go, where the home team had a shot at the end and they missed it, they lost by two. Like, dominant? Are they going to are they going to roll through the Big Ten season? No, there's too many good teams in the Big Ten. There's too many teams like Maryland and Indiana and Nebraska that at their place you, you you're not beating them, or if you do, it's going to take all you got. So I don't think they're dominant, but I think those two teams, I think the Michigan teams, are the class of the league by a lot. I'll tell you that Nick Ward man, he I mean I'm watching Fernando last night, and we we've, we've watched every game, and so we know how much better he is this year, and what a force, physical force. He is in college basketball, but man, Ward is like the same. I mean, he's impossible to stop from getting to the rim when he's on the low post. Um, I'm looking forward to some of these. I'm looking forward to some of these games. You know, I I am. I, I and and last night made it such that we can start to look forward to Indiana a week from Friday night. Indiana's ranked right now. That's a big home game. You know, and if, right. if somehow they can beat Rutgers which they should be able to do, but I feel the same way you do. It's probably going to be a tight game uh, down the stretch. Then maybe there will be some you know, big-time juice for the Indiana game next Friday night. It's a Friday night. That helps a little bit that you don't have to get up, and most people don't, and go to work the next day, even though it's an early start. Uh, all right, let's get to the skins. 
Um, you, uh, you were very, very eloquent and passionate, and I think it really hit a nerve for a lot of Redskins fans because it was a national thing, and everybody recognizes you're from here. Um, but, you know, all of us have been hammering on this locally, but to, to hear somebody do it the way you did it nationally, um, I think people were, were pleased with, uh, most in the fan base were. What, what sort of sent you in that direction? What, why did wh- wh- your, your passion for the team and, and the past, um, you know, there was a nerve hit. What was it? I think, and, and you and I have had lengthy conversations before and after I said what I said on the show. And and you've made the point, I know you've made it on the podcast, that, that, that Sunday wasn't some one-off. I mean, I know you made the point to me that, you know, coming home, that first game, really, against the Colts, where you've got a 1-0 record and, you know, the place isn't close to filled, it was should have sent bells and whistles off. For me, it was the fact that at the end of this year, they had the most precipitous drop of, of fan support at the stadium of any NFL team. The fact that the Liz Clark um, article in the post pointed out they were bottom three in attendance uh, for the season in the NFL. And just a, to turn on your television and see a division rival in a game to make the playoffs take over your stadium, to me, was such a such an insult to the idea of what the Redskins once were, that if it didn't resonate with ownership, if it didn't resonate in the front office, if these people that have somehow managed to insulate themselves from reality, if they didn't have a repulsive reaction to that, if it didn't make them physically ill, then that makes me physically ill. And my fear is that they're so, so detached from anything close to reality that it didn't hit home. And so I felt like the, the other thing, Kevin, about this this game as opposed to the first game is this is the last image you have of that franchise for the entire offseason. The last, the last chapter of the book is the one where 40,000 Philadelphia fans or whatever the number was came in and had a party at your house and is running around the concourse singing Fly Eagles Fly and chanting <laughs> Let's Go Bears. And if they hadn't been there, no one would have been there. And that to me is just um I hate like unacceptable. Like that that's that's too dramatic. If it, it it's of course it's it doesn't have any impact on my life. If it continues to go on that way, it's whatever. It is it's it's not not hurting me in any way. It ought to be unacceptable to them. Um, so is it, what are you prepared to do? Is it as simple as moving Bruce Allen? I mean, you can hashtag fire Bruce Allen all you want. It doesn't make any difference if Dan Snyder brings in somebody else that is the same as that. So what difference does it make? Um, I don't know what the fix is. I just felt like it was important to just say what I felt. And clearly it resonated with a lot of people who, to your point, were happy just to hear it said somewhere that had a, a megaphone that was plugged in from, you know, DC to LA. Yeah, I mean it's it, it, it was great. I mean, I the um the analogy of royalty uh you know the, the the fact that the Redskins are Sears now and and they think they're royalty was um and I told everybody about, you know, you contacting me when you're at the Super Bowl and you said, "Who are these people? Who are these I people?" I know. You, you, they, I just couldn't believe it. 
And, I couldn't believe it. But I, I had told you for a while that that's who they were, you know, from a front office standpoint, that it was just, it was, it, it was incredible, the lack of success and the, and the disconnect from, from reality. But um, it, 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 it's, it's strange because I, I feel like, and I've talked about this a lot, that we've been here so many times as a fan base. Like there, there have been these rock bottom moments in every single time you're in that rock bottom moment. It's the same story. Like Liz and, and, and Maskey and and Carpenter did a good job with that story, but it's the same story with some new quotes and some new pieces of information that's been written multiple times over, you know, a 10 to 12 year period. I mean, when Zorn's, but hold on, but hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. And I'm sorry to interrupt you over a 10 to 12 year period. In 2005, the NFL, the Redskins set an NFL record for, the, for, for attendance. So we're talking about the, the, the level of support and buy-in, even in the face of declining accomplishment, continued. This year was a complete bottom falling out that, that had to have shocked them. I'm not saying that it wasn't. You, I'm not okay, saying that it wasn't. What I'm saying is, what I'm saying is that different to me. These rock bottom moments have been very similar to one another in that when you're in it, you don't think it could get any worse. You know, at the I end see. of at the end of 2009, at the end of the Zorn season, that season, if you go back and look at it, there were multiple games with half-filled stadiums. The the Kansas City game from early in, in the year, it was the first time I remember using the description apathetic. That apathy was much worse than anger, and and a portion of the fan base was becoming apathetic. Um, at the end of 2013, the the, the Shanahan ending with with RG, with the owner picking RG three over the coach. It seemed like a new rock bottom. At the end of 2014, Gruden's f- uh, first season at 4-12, and 12, it was the same conversations. It always seems like you're in a rock bottom moment, but I think what we've learned here is that there's always further to go. I, I will tell you this from an attendance standpoint, one of the reasons the drop is reflected the way it is in terms of percentage is because the Redskins have just reported before these, you know, before this year, they've just reported every game as a sellout. They've never given you the real numbers. Everybody that's a Redskin fan that has watched every game knows that there have been half-filled stadiums here in recent years. Now, there's never been a half-filled stadium for a home opener like there was in September of this year. And it's been a long time since... um, you know, you've seen a stadium taken over to that effect. It was the biggest crowd of the year by all accounts. And it's it's because the Eagle fans came. It was terrible. But, you know, another incredible moment from this year and memorable moment to go with the home opener, the Eagles game, is being down at home 40 to nothing early in the third quarter to the Giants. That is when I think this season, uh, the Giant game, Scott, when they're down 40 to nothing, that's when everybody knew that the Eagle game, if the Eagles were in contention, it would be what it was going to be. Because we've seen it before with Cowboy fans, not to that degree, but we've seen half the stadium, 55, 60% of the stadium, Cowboy fans before. It's it's not... Yeah. I, yeah. It's, it, it, I, I, I wasn't suggesting it was new. I, I was suggesting I know. That, like the, the, idea of, the idea of erosion... Is is you can I, I suppose you can turn a blind eye, but but that that was such a jarring, loud, and very nationally consumed 
team. Like, and you can point out the Pittsburgh Monday night game years ago, which which I remember being like, whoa, because it was the Redskins were actually pretty good, and all you saw were terrible towels. Right. Um, so sure, there there have been moments. I know. I, I I wasn't acting like this was some epiphany I had. I think it was just a I've had enough of watching this without saying what I think, right? And without just sharing my disgust with the whole with the entirety of what it's become. And, you know, I, I don't know if, if Daniel Snyder and that group is, is, is uh, even capable of a come to Jesus moment. I don't know. Um, but if this, if this season wasn't it, then it is truly a hopeless endeavor. And I'm sure you've shared, you know, anecdotally your, your stories of the people you live there in Montgomery County. And, and that's what, that's where I'm from. And, and I don't have a friend other than my man Sanko, who took his kids that are Eagles fans, I don't have a friend who would have gone Sunday if you paid them. Like, you couldn't get paid actors to, to take Redskin tickets. And I juxtaposed that with my grandpa, who back in the 80s, we were able to get him one season ticket. I don't even remember the story behind how he got it. And it was in the back row of RFK. And my grandpa would go by himself <laughs> on Sundays to the eight Redskin games a year and sit by himself. Because he was so psyched to be able to go, and I think about that. My 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 elderly grandfather, bless his heart, Lorenzo, the guy that I told the story about on Thanksgiving Day, and the Cowboys trying to kill him. Like, like I think about that guy, and now I think about people in D.C. that just don't care, truly do not care, because but, of how this organization has gone, and that is astonishing to me. There is no doubt that it's this new rock bottom of even more people. But you and I both know that our friends, you know, most of them uh, started to check out years ago. I mean, five years ago, you couldn't give away a ticket to some of these games, you know, to, to people who said, look, even if they were good, it's too inconvenient. The stadium, the, the experience, and, and you hit on some of those um, in, in, your, in your thing on SportsCenter the other night. It's just, it's a new rock bottom. I'll tell you what is unique about this one. I don't know that I've ever seen, you know, we talk about apathy and indifference, and, there, and there's no doubt it's at an all-time high. And it's much worse than anger. I mean, that, that's an emotion that no, no company that sells a consumer product ever wants their customers to feel. And it's at an all-time high. With that said, there's also never been a louder movement from a social media standpoint with respect to one person in the organization than this hashtag yeah, fire right. Bruce Allen thing. It is, well, that, look, that's well, astonishing. Look. Go go to their Twitter page and just look at the responses to every benign tweet that they send out. Well, they well now they can't even now they can't tweet at all because anything they say they could tweet out. We're giving out money to anybody that doesn't say fire Bruce Allen. And it's, it's unbelievable. We'll give any every person that doesn't that doesn't tweet fire Bruce Allen will give you will give you twenty bucks. It'll be fire Bruce Allen. But I'm asking you, do you think that that they will that they will and this isn't going to lead to the next question of will it make any difference. I just want to know: Do you think that they will that they will give this irate and apparently much larger than they thought group of people that want that guy gone? Will they will they give them that? Will they fire Bruce Allen? I have thought for the better part of maybe a month and a half, two months, that yes, that they would either fire him or reassign him. 
Um, Jerry Brewer was on the show with me yesterday, and he said he thinks he'll be reassigned, but not far enough away to where he won't still have significant influence. And that's a problem. You know, the fan base wants him gone. They don't even want him, you know, hired back as a 1099 employee to consult on stadium matters. They, they want him gone. And, you know, what you said is 100% true, and I, I've, I've made this point multiple times over the last month, is that it's not going to really solve the problem much. You know, it just gives you a chance of maybe getting lucky with a flukish hire that turns out better than that one. I mean, it can't get any worse either. I, we say that all the time at Rock Bottom, and then three years later, there's a new Rock Bottom. But it's the owner. It's the fact that he doesn't believe it's him. He doesn't think that there are as many problems as the fans do. And somehow the erosion that you've mentioned and I've talked about repeatedly ad nauseum has almost escaped him. I I don't know how that happens other than to say that maybe when you get to a certain level, you know, the caring for, you know, all of your, you know, uh, the the caring for this business or the, the attention paid to it just isn't as close. I don't, I, I, I don't, I, I cannot, I cannot process that. Me neither. And I don't, uh, I don't pretend to know the man. Uh, I, I, I do believe that, or I don't believe that you could become as successful in business by being completely oblivious to obvious things. I don't believe that. I do believe that you can get to a place where you're so, uh, insulated with people that tell you it's fine that you miss things. But this, this had to have been this new rock bottom, this new low. This had to have been something that resonated uh, with him, and I suppose to the degree that that I, I wanted to be one who contributed to helping him realize that. That's why I chose to to say what I said on the show. I'm not suggesting he and the Redskins uh, brass sit down and watch my show, but I I would imagine by now, just like. The article in the post I imagine they're aware it's been said <laughs> yeah I mean I said on the podcast yesterday I mean your rant Sally's column Jerry's column all of the people everybody that's been I don't think they care I think people I probably think relate either. to them what's been said sometimes more times than not uh they don't know about it um, but when they do find out about it they don't care they think you're wrong they think Sally's wrong they think People like me locally are wrong, dead wrong. That we don't have the whole story, and all I, all you can well, point then they to, deserve, then they deserve, they deserve what they get. Yeah, you and can they all... deserve what they get when they get empty stadiums and get taken over by division rivals, and you get nationally pants like that. Then you deserve what you get. <laughs> yeah, and they he, did. You, you can continue to put tarps over seats that used to be filled, and you can try to sell tickets on the radio and on TV locally that nobody wants to buy, and you can keep acting like everybody else is wrong. We're not wrong. We're, we're your consumers, and we're right. And so continue, with, continue down this path at your own peril. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the NFL playoffs start this weekend. Did you ask me this question, which I actually just asked Joe Banner um, uh, a few minutes ago, uh, about the three AFC teams at the top and the three AFC teams at the bottom? Did you ask me that or not? Did I steal that from you? It was not me. Okay, so um, if you had to choose from the top three seeds in the AFC or the bottom three seeds, the top three are Kansas City, New England, and Houston. The bottom three are Baltimore, the Chargers, and Indy. Which of those two groups will the AFC champion emerge from? 
Well, that's really interesting. Uh, I, I would assume the top three just because I think – I made this comment on my uh, on my show at some point about the Chiefs. The Chiefs have lost four games. They haven't looked bad in any of them. There hadn't been a game where they looked they looked out of it, and it's because of that offense in Mahomes. Um, I think they're going to be. I think they're going to be a tough out. I, I think the AFC champion comes from the top third, but I but I understand the question because in luck and in the totality of Baltimore and in uh, Rivers and the totality of the Chargers, I think you have real live possibilities of them of them springing upsets. I just wonder who's best equipped to go into Kansas City and, and win a game. Is it is it you know Rivers who's done it already once? Is it Baltimore who almost did it? It took a miracle from Holmes. Um, who do what's your what's your? I'll take the top three, but is your answer the bottom three? I think so. Um, I I think so. I in part because I think it'll just take either the Chargers, uh, the Chargers or the Ravens winning um the, the the problem with that is i actually think houston could could go to the super bowl also i really do really i i do i, I think, think that outline of theirs is so bad that at some point it's just going to cost them like you can't keep having watson running around and pulling rabbits out of hats no you can't um but they i think they will move the ball and score against indy on on saturday and then i think they could easily go to foxborough and win so then you're you know you you're you're two wins away two two games that i think they can win to be in the afc title game but the baltimore thing you know this i you know i'm a rivers fan first and i'm rooting for him more than anything else in this postseason i just think that the ravens are just fascinating to watch and I think that there's something about that team all the time in the postseason that they'll have a chance and the way they play now is so unique not on defense but on offense uh what will be interesting is to see if they can come from behind if they get behind because that's that's their there's no chance that Lamar Jackson could throw them back from down two scores in the second half agreed Agreed, and that's that's why I have I've I've wondered if that exact scenario you just mentioned can, comes to be, do they just pull you know pull the, the the poncho off Super Joe and see if he's got a you know cape on you know and throw Flacco in there? <laughs> I wonder if that would happen because they've been ball control and lean on the defense. But but to your point, you know you're down seventeen three early third quarter. That's a tough that's a tough comeback script if if you're really not trying to throw the ball at all but I wonder the, the thing I really have wondered about is is did Baltimore do themselves almost a, a disservice by how they played against the Chargers a couple weeks ago you know did they did they show their hand enough that the Chargers can go back and look at it and figure out where there's a weakness or is it just that Baltimore's defense is just so nasty that, that the Chargers really aren't able to, to figure it out I like that's that's the biggest curiosity to me I think it's a lot of the latter I mean, you know, yeah, they they probably, they, right. they couldn't run it, they couldn't throw it, they couldn't catch it and and make any plays, you know. Um, but but they're but you know you know how these things go. It's like all of a sudden you get one big play and it loosens things up. And when Baltimore is in that front running position defensively, they are really difficult. I think really difficult. I also think an interesting question, and I had this conversation with Joe Banner um, when he was on earlier in the show, is if you injected truth serum into John Harbaugh, would he tell you that they've got a better chance to win the Super Bowl if he starts Flacco right from the beginning than Jackson? I mean, he, he can't do it, 
but I wonder whether or not you know winning a Super Bowl at this point, if they'd if he thinks they'd have a better chance with Flacco. Uh, I that that's a, that's an interesting question. One one of many. Like I really believe this playoffs is the most interesting we've had in years because I think that the I don't know what the Chiefs are in the playoffs. I really I wonder about the Rams and I, I mean the Bears rather. Um, for the same reason, I wonder about the, the Ravens. Like offensively, even though they're more creative, like is Trubisky a guy that makes a mistake? And and the Patriots to me are the biggest uh, and most interesting question because when they've been bad this year, they've been worse than I ever remember them. Like that loss at Tennessee where they just were totally outclassed. There have been times where Brady just doesn't look close to what he's been, missing wide open guys, and yet they always figure out some way to take what they've got and make it enough, you know? So, I don't know. This this, this is a legitimately fascinating playoff uh, picture, and it starts with a really interesting first round. Yeah, it really is. You know, there's not – as I've looked at the four games um, on on this for this weekend, I don't really think there's like a major, you know, smell test anti-public side. It's like it's like all of the games, people are making the case for, you know, each team in all four games. You know, you can pretty much do yeah. that. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm writing something for the show uh, that's about along the lines of what I was talking about, the big picture of the playoffs in, in totality, and then this weekend. And to me, the most, the best thing you can have in sports from an interest standpoint is when no result would be a shock. Right. That's what I think we had this weekend. I think you can talk yourself into any result for any of the four games where you kind of shrug and go, well, you're not that one. I mean, Philly winning in Chicago would be the big, the biggest surprise in my opinion. But then you just go, well, you know, Foles last year in the Super Bowl, you know, and, and the playoffs, I mean, he, he did some stuff and you go, yeah, that's true. So I agree with you on that. I and I think a lot of NFL fans think that, you know, Philly's in and now they're the most dangerous team. I uh, that would be the most surprising result for me too this weekend is if Philly goes to Soldier Field and beats that team that I've watched this year that I think is as good as any other than Baltimore defensively in the league and they've got, you know, weapons well, I offensively. I think they're every I think they're every bit as good as Baltimore defense. I mean, every bit as good. Yeah, I think you might um, be right on that. Um and then the only surprise in the postseason in general for me would be if New Orleans lost at home. It wouldn't be a shocker shocker, but it would be the... It would depend on who it is. It would depend on who it is, but but you're right. Like To me, them... like Breeze in, in that building is just a different animal yeah. entirely, and um, and so that's, that's, the, that's the one thing that feels like the you know, the, the strongest candidate, but we've also seen them look much more beatable down the stretch in the last month than we did at, at, at stretches during the middle of the season. So, I don't know. Exactly. I mean, I'm always excited about the playoffs. Yeah, me this, too. Year, this year is, is, uh, is going to be something. All right. Uh, have a great weekend. I'll talk to you. See you. I'm sure we will. Have a good one. All right. If you're listening to the podcast and you know others that want to listen to the podcast, but they tell you that they don't know how to do a podcast, just tell them to go to the KevinSheehanShow.com. I get that all the time. I'll get people that'll say, hey, I heard that you know, you're doing this podcast, and I'll say, have you listened? And if they say no, they'll tell me that it's because they don't do podcasts. That's the, the answer. I don't know how to do a podcast. You don't have to know how to do a podcast. It's really easy 
to use your phone and use Apple Podcasts or iTunes, as all of you know, to listen to a podcast. But most people know how to, you know, find a website on the internet. So just tell them to go to thekevinsheehanshow.com and they can listen very easily whenever they want to listen. And also, and I've asked uh, this of all of you before, if you haven't subscribed It doesn't cost anything. You don't have to give any information. But if you're listening on a platform, Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Spotify, and they give you a chance to subscribe to the podcast, do that. Um, It just helps us. And it'll definitely help us even more during the off-season when football's not going on. So if you don't mind doing that, it really is a big help. It's not going to take up any phone space. It's it's just you getting the podcast as a, as a subscriber when it's done each day. It doesn't force you to listen if you don't want to listen. Um, and uh, it just it makes it easier and it makes it better for us. Also, rate it if they give you a chance to review it or rate it. Uh, that helps as well. Uh, Aaron just pointed something out to me um, right after uh, Scott, uh, we recorded Scott on the podcast, and that is the breaking news of the day that the domestic violence charge against Reuben Foster has been dropped. Um, Here's the story on ESPN. Uh, The state attorney's office in Florida has dropped the misdemeanor domestic violence charge against Redskins linebacker Reuben Foster. Uh, That, according to Hillsborough County Court records, the charge stemmed from the November 24th incident between Foster and his former girlfriend the night before his former team, the 49ers, played the Buccaneers in Tampa. Uh, He had been scheduled for arraignment um, on Thursday today. Uh, He was released in late November um, by the 49ers. And, of course, the Redskins claimed him on waivers just two days uh, after that, and they took heavy criticism uh, a ton of criticism for doing it. Uh, I don't need I don't need to spend a lot of time on this because I've said this from the beginning, from the day that they signed him. It doesn't matter if he's guilty or innocent. It was not smart for the Redskins on that particular day with very little due diligence other than perhaps one or two players that they talked to on their own roster that had played played with Reuben Foster at Alabama. It was not, in my view, this is my opinion, was not very smart of them to sign Reuben Foster on that particular day in that particular moment. It wasn't. And I said on that day, it doesn't matter, guilt or innocence. And in fact, left open the possibility, the real possibility that he would be found innocent of these charges or these charges would be dropped um, and and therefore he would be uh, potentially, potentially eligible to play. It doesn't mean that the league still can't suspend him um, for, you know, now a third arrest in, I think it's a year and three months, you know, in, in 15 months total, the second domestic violence uh, incident. Uh, but anyway, um, they... He now has the opportunity, potentially down the road, if the league doesn't suspend him, to play football. We know that now because his legal situation as it relates to this previous incident is now done. Um, I Here's what I would recommend to the team. Do not do what you've done before in these situations. Do not raise your arms in a V. And do not strut as if, you were right and everyone else was wrong. 
most reasonable people assumed that there was a possibility that he was innocent. We still didn't think, a lot of reasonable people, that it made sense for the Redskins to be the team that signed him 72 hours after his third arrest and second domestic violence uh, arrest uh, in less than a year. Uh, I hope for that young man that he figures it out and gets it together. And for the Redskins, it would be incredible if he were cleared and never got into trouble again and became a great player for them. It would. It would be great for them. Doesn't mean that when they did it, it made sense to some. It didn't to me. Uh, We were going to do coaching blunders today, but man, the shows run long with two long interviews. Um, I can do some of those tomorrow. I have them. I've got the list of them. Uh, Tomorrow, I think Cooley will be on with us tomorrow, uh, so tune in for that. But thanks to Joe Banner. Really enjoyed the conversation with him. Scott as well. Um, We do Scott every Thursday, as most of you know. Uh, Aaron did a great job producing. I didn't. Did I have anything else? The only thing I was going to say, actually, I did have something else. You know what we didn't get into um, since it happened at all is John Wall down for the year with surgery. This is true. I mean, I know that it's not a big deal to most of you. It's an interesting deal to me because unlike last year where I said, you know, look, they're playing great without him. They're playing team ball without him. Hashtag everybody eats. But there's no chance of them doing anything if they were to get to the playoffs without him. I actually feel a little bit differently this year. I think the team will play better. They won last night. They won their second straight game. I mean, they beat Atlanta at home. Alex uh, Len had a great game Alex, against them. What, what did Herter do last night? I didn't see what Herter did. I did see Alex Len at 24-11. and 11. He's, He had a great game against them when they hammered him in, in Atlanta a few weeks ago. Uh, but I, I am more interested, none of you are, that's fine, in watching this team with Sadoransky as the you know thirty-five minute plus a night point guard, um, and to see them play differently and with more people involved and with more movement and with more of a chance, I think right now than the way John Wall was playing to be successful. Look, the Eastern Conference, you know, they're still only what two games out of the last playoff spot. Three, they're three games out. Uh, they could still make a run to 500 and be in the postseason. <sighs> Nobody cares. That was a total waste of everyone's time. I apologize for that. Uh, anyway, uh, have a great day and talk to you tomorrow.